This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Michael Scherer. Typee by Herman Melville. Chapter 15 All the inhabitants of the valley treated me with great kindness. But as to the household of Marheyo, with whom I was now permanently domiciled, nothing could surpass their efforts to minister to my comfort. To the gratification of my palate, they paid the most unwearied attention. They continually invited me to partake of food, and when, after eating heartily, I declined the viands they continued to offer me, they seemed to think that my appetite stood in need of some piquant stimulant to excite its activity. In pursuance of this idea, old Marheyo himself would hie him away to the seashore by the break of day, for the purpose of collecting various species of rare seaweed, some of which among these people are considered a great luxury. After a whole day spent in this employment, he would return about nightfall with several coconut shells filled with different descriptions of kelp. In preparing these for use, he manifested all the ostentation of a professed cook, although the chief mystery of the affair appeared to consist in pouring water in judicious quantities upon the slimy contents of his coconut shells. The first time he submitted one of these saline salads to my critical attention, I naturally thought that anything collected at such pains must possess peculiar merits, but one mouthful was a complete dose, and great was the consternation of the old warrior at the rapidity with which I ejected his epicurean treat. How true it is that the rarity of any particular article enhances its value amazingly. In some part of the valley, I know not where, but probably in the neighborhood of the sea, the girls were sometimes in the habit of procuring small quantities of salt, a thimbleful or so being the result of the united labors of a party of five or six employed for the greater part of the day. This precious commodity they brought to the house, enveloped in multitudinous folds of leaves, and as a special mark of the esteem in which they held me, would spread an immense leaf on the ground, and dropping one by one a few minute particles of the salt upon it, invite me to taste them. From the extravagant value placed upon the article, I verily believe that with a bushel of common Liverpool salt all the real estate in Taipei might have been purchased. With a small pinch of it in one hand, and a quarter section of a breadfruit in the other, the greatest chief in the valley would have laughed at all the luxuries of a Parisian table. The celebrity of the breadfruit tree and the conspicuous place it occupies in a Taipei bill of fare, induces me to give at some length a general description of the tree, and the various modes in which the fruit is prepared. The breadfruit tree, in its glorious prime, is a grand and towering object, forming the same feature in a Marquesan landscape that the patriarchal elm does in New England scenery. The latter tree it not a little resembles in height, in the wide spread of its stalwart branches, and in its venerable and imposing aspect. The leaves of the breadfruit are of great size, and their edges are cut and scalloped as fantastically as those of a lady's lace collar. As they annually tend towards decay, they almost rival in the brilliant variety of their gradually changing hues, 
the fleeting shades of the expiring dolphin. The autumnal tints of our American forests, glorious as they are, sink into nothing in comparison with this tree. The leaf, in one particular stage, when nearly all the prismatic colors are blended on its surface, is often converted by the natives into a superb and striking headdress, the principal fiber traversing its length being split open a convenient distance, and the elastic sides of the aperture pressed apart, the head is inserted between them, the leaf drooping on one side, with its forward half turned jauntily up on the brows, and the remaining part spreading laterally behind the ears. The fruit somewhat resembles in magnitude and general appearance one of our citron melons of ordinary size. But unlike the citron, it has no sectional lines drawn along the outside. Its surface is dotted all over with little conical prominences, looking not unlike the knobs on an antiquated church door. The rind is perhaps an eighth of an inch in thickness, and denuded of this, at the time when it is in the greatest perfection, the fruit presents a beautiful globe of white pulp, the whole of which may be eaten, with the exception of a slender core which is easily removed. The breadfruit, however, is never used, and is indeed altogether unfit to be eaten, until submitted in one form or other to the action of fire. The most simple manner in which this operation is performed, and I think the best, consists in placing any number of the freshly plucked fruit when in a particular stage of greenness, among the embers of a fire, in the same way that you would roast a potato. After the lapse of ten or fifteen minutes, the green rind embrowns and cracks, showing through the fissures in its sides the milk-white interior. As soon as it cools, the rind drops off, and you then have the soft round pulp in its purest and most delicious state. Thus eaten, it has a mild and pleasing flavor. Sometimes, after having been roasted in the fire, the natives snatch it briskly from the embers, and permitting it to slip out of the yielding rind into a vessel of cold water, stir up the mixture, which they call boasho. I never could endure this compound, and indeed the preparation is not greatly in vogue among the more polite Taipees. There is one form, however, in which the fruit is occasionally served, that renders it a dish fit for a king. As soon as it is taken from the fire, the exterior is removed, the core extracted, and the remaining part is placed in a sort of shallow stone mortar, and briskly worked with a pestle of the same substance. While one person is performing this operation, another takes a ripe coconut, and breaking it in half, which they also do very cleverly, proceeds to grate the juicy meat into fine particles. This is done by means of a piece of mother-of-pearl shell lashed firmly to the extreme end of a heavy stick, with its straight side accurately notched like a saw. The stick is sometimes a grotesquely formed limb of a tree, with three or four branches twisting from its body like so many shapeless legs, and sustaining it two or three feet from the ground. The native, first placing a calabash beneath the nose, as it were, of his curious-looking log steed, for the purpose of receiving the grated fragments as they fall, mounts astride of it as if it were a hobby-horse, and twirling the inside of one of his hemispheres of coconut around the sharp teeth of the mother-of-pearl shell, 
the pure white meat falls in snowy showers into the receptacle provided. Having obtained a quantity sufficient for his purpose, he places it in a bag made of the net-like fibrous substance attached to all coconut trees, and compressing it over the breadfruit, which being now sufficiently pounded is put into a wooden bowl, extracts a thick, creamy milk. The delicious liquid soon bubbles round the fruit, and leaves it at last just peeping above its surface. This preparation is called koku, and a most luscious preparation it is. The hobby horse and the pestle and mortar were in great requisition during the time I remained in the house of Marheyo, and Kori Kori had frequent occasion to show his skill in their use. But the great staple articles of food into which the breadfruit is converted by these natives are known respectively by the names of Amar and Poe Poe. At certain seasons of the year, when the fruit of the hundred groves of the valley has reached its maturity, and hangs in golden spheres from every branch, the islanders assemble in harvest groups, and garner in the abundance which surrounds them. The trees are stripped of their nodding burdens, which, easily freed from the rind and core, are gathered together in capacious wooden vessels, where the pulpy fruit is soon worked by a stone pestle, vigorously applied, into a blended mass of a doughy consistency, called by the natives tutau. This is then divided into separate parcels, which, after being made up into stout packages, enveloped in successive folds of leaves, and bound round with thongs of bark, are stored away in large receptacles, hollowed in the earth, from whence they are drawn as occasion may require. In this condition, the tutau sometimes remains for years, and even is thought to improve by age. Before it is fit to be eaten, however, it has to undergo an additional process. A primitive oven is scooped in the ground, and its bottom being loosely covered with stones, a large fire is kindled within it. As soon as the requisite degree of heat is attained, the embers are removed, and the surface of the stones being covered with thick layers of leaves, one of the larger packages of tutau is deposited upon them, and overspread with another layer of leaves. The whole is then quickly heaped up with earth, and forms a sloping mound. The tutau thus baked is called amar, the action of the oven having converted it into an amber-colored cakey substance, a little tart, but not at all disagreeable to the taste. By another and final process, the amar is changed into poe poe. This transition is rapidly effected. The amar is placed in a vessel, and mixed with water until it gains a proper pudding-like consistency, when, without further preparation, it is in readiness for use. This is the form in which the tutau is generally consumed. The singular mode of eating it I have already described. Were it not that the breadfruit is thus capable of being preserved for a length of time, the natives might be reduced to a state of starvation. For owing to some unknown cause, the trees sometimes fail to bear fruit, and on such occasions the islanders chiefly depend upon the supplies they have been enabled to store away. This stately tree, which is rarely met with upon the Sandwich Islands, and then only of a very inferior quality, and at Tahiti does not abound to a degree that renders its fruit the principal article of food, attains its greatest excellence in the genial climate of the Marquesan group, where it grows to an enormous magnitude, 
and flourishes in the utmost abundance. 